This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. So what's the difference between launching a political campaign on June 30th and July 10th? Does it really matter? Why, yes. Yes, it does. And here to explain why is Nathan Gonzalez, Roll Call's elections analyst and the publisher of Inside Elections. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Jason. Uh, this is what we want to talk. This is what people like us talk about in July. This is, yes. this is, this is what we come for. Well, um, you know, I guess we could talk about shark attacks and things like that, you know, but I feel like that's that's maybe that's overdone a little bit. You know, people, have, if they've gone swimming over the July 4th holiday, they've already been bitten by a shark or attacked by an orca. Uh, so I, I don't know. I feel like this is just this is what's left over. Right. Right. And, and I'm in I'm in Indiana right now visiting family. And it's a, there's a lot of talk in Indiana about who puts what vehicle in the ditch. That's often a, you know, it's a big deal. Rodeos, 4-H fairs, you know, those are those are important too. And remind me of the minor league baseball team that's near you. They're, they're the Fort Wayne Tin, tin Caps, right? Tin Is Caps, that right. After Johnny Appleseed, uh, very, it's a Padres Class A affiliate. Uh, so there have been quite a few prospects that have come through. Very impressive ballpark if you're ever in the uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana uh, area. I would highly recommend a trip to Parkview Field. Now, why why do the Padres need prospects? They can just sign Juan Soto and and Manny Machado and and people like that, right? They don't need prospects, right? They don't need a minor league system when they have the Nationals as their minor league system. <laughs> oh, so. oh, although now a lot of those San Diego formerly San Diego prospects are in the major leagues, like uh, you know C.J. Abrams. So. There we go. Um, well, you know, aside from the ditch, uh, who who drove the car to the ditch, the Fort Wayne uh, minor league team and shark attacks, uh, I guess we do have left over uh, the, the 2024 campaign in July and 2023. I mean, is, this is prime uh, discussion fodder for for political junkies, of course, uh, this this far out, um, because, as I like to say, politics never really does sleep. Uh, and I, I think your story for, for roll call about why now, why, why, what was magic about July 10th? It actually is one of those things that maybe some people, they file it away as interesting, but don't quite know. And I think that there's actually a good explanation and, you know, the effect of it is, is debatable, but there is a, there is a pretty viable explanation for that. So go. Yeah, let's walk through it. So a lot of this has to do with fundraising and the importance of campaign fundraising. Uh, fundraising in campaigns is broken up into quarters because that's the what the, is required on the reporting by the Federal Election Commission. So, uh, and, and campaigns understand that the media, maybe present company included, likes to focus on fundraising numbers as an example of candidate strength. So what you want to do is you want to give yourself as much time, as much of a full fundraising quarter as possible to raise as much money as possible. So you don't, so you will often see candidates jump in on January 1st or April 1st or July 1st or October 1st, because those are the beginning of the quarter. So with that in mind, when you look at July 1st, 
uh, the beginning of the third quarter, July 1st, fell on a Saturday. And so campaigns often want to avoid announcing on a Saturday or on a weekend because there aren't as many people paying attention. Maybe I, fewer, I myself was watching the new Indiana Jones film on July 1st. So, there you yeah. go. Fewer reporters that want to pay attention uh, to and write about and cover campaigns because they're at the movies or elsewhere or at the minor league baseball stadiums. Uh, and so they, you want to avoid the weekends. So if, if a candidate didn't want to announce on July 1st or 2nd over the weekend, then we hit July 3rd close to a major holiday. You want to avoid major holidays because of the same reasons. There aren't as many people paying attention. You often want to announce. And then when once we got past July 4th, candidates don't often like to announce later in the week because you minimize the time that you can do interviews with, with reporters and get a lot of this earned media attention. And so that pushed us all the way to Monday, July the 10th. And that's why we had at least 11 congressional candidates that I found. There could have been more that announced on July 10th. And and so it seems like a random day in the middle of the summer, in the middle of July, but there was a method to the madness. And I, I think it it's it, it really does, I think, speak to, you know, wanting to maximize the the exposure for it because it it does seem like, I mean, we're we're not, you know, there obviously people were working on those days that you mentioned, even on even on Saturdays, political reporters frequently travel over holiday weekends and so forth. But the the eyeballs uh are are not always there, as as you said. Uh and honestly, does it make any difference, you know, to you know, like that that uh you know, nine days, that nine day like of July? Not really. Uh it just just sort of got pushed out a little bit for a be- further because, as you said, the you know July fourth was on a Tuesday, so it, it really did sort of scramble everybody's uh, work uh, schedule and, and life schedule, and so it, it makes as much sense to, to me as, as as anything because again you do want that earned media, especially for some of the candidates we're talking about because we're not talking about necessarily some you know like big self funders or people who have national profiles already uh, but but people who are getting into the race somewhat organically and they want they want to take advantage of everything that is is available to them right because this is one of the main pieces of a campaign that a candidate can control, right? There's going to be other news developments that happen that are outside of the the candidate's control, but this is something that you could try to orchestrate, right? You can say, okay, I'm going to announce on a Monday. I'm going to do these interviews with these local newspapers or these national news outlets and this TV station, this cable network, and you can try to roll those out. And so that's why the timing is important uh, specifically, and yeah, there's a there's a wide range of candidates that did uh, that that announced on Monday. Um, some of them in actually two of them in the same district uh, in the most competitive one of the most competitive house districts in the country, which is Michigan's seventh district. It's an right. open seat because Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin is running for the Senate. So you had Republican Tom Barrett who ran last time, and Kurt Hurdle uh, who used to work for Slotkin, who's kind of consolidating the field on the Democratic side. and uh, But it, then it ranges all the way to um, actor Hill Harper, uh, who is running in the Michigan Senate race, uh, actually challenging Slotkin in that primary. Uh, I am not a... F- I am not an avid watcher of The Good Doctor. I do remember Hill Harper from his role in The Skulls, a, a 2000, early 2000s movie that I'm sure no one but Jason remembers. Uh, but you know, th- just there's a wide range of candidates that that decide to jump in uh, this week. And it, it is interesting too. Like, I mean, just just the sort of spillover of the Michigan races that you mentioned. It's you know, Michigan's. 
Seventh uh, District that Slotkin is is leaving an open seat in. You got all that activity. It's also in one of your battleground uh, seats. That you know, it's it's been competitive. I mean, Slotkin has been a, has been a, a strong candidate since she first won uh, in twenty eighteen. But you know, who knows? Uh, op- open seats are always a little easier to to uh, to to uh, uh, flip. You know, if if you're looking to or to or to win rather than dislodging an incumbent. Uh, and this is one of the most. This will be one of the more competitive races in on the House side for sure. And then Slotkin herself is in uh, a, a, a potentially tough race in in Michigan. She doesn't know who her, her opponent might be if she gets out of the primary because the Republicans uh, haven't settled on an, an, a major candidate. But this is you know this is Michigan. It's during a presidential year. It's going to be competitive, especially if it's a Donald Trump Joe Biden. Uh, contest uh, again because the this both men have have uh, a hold on different parts of the electorate and so just those two races right there that's a lot of a lot of competitive fever if you will and this I think there's an important point in all of this about the cycle in that this cycle has been very slow to develop at the congressional level. I think a lot of it is because of the uncertainty at the top of the ballot with the presidential race. I say uncertainty when it looks like we're headed for a rematch, but I think for candidates that are thinking about jumping in, they're not sure how strong the top of the ticket is going to be with them. How strong are they going to be running a Democrat running with Biden? How strong is he going to be? Are they going to be a Republican running with Trump? How many indictments is he going to be under when we get there? And that has delayed a lot of these candidate announcements. And there's a prevailing, uh, I would say, strategist wisdom right now that it's okay to get into campaigns late because the sooner you get in, then uh, the less time the opposition has to attack you. Like, why why get in early when you're just going to get all these attack ads? But there's tension between candidates need more money. And so in order to raise more money, you need more time. And I think this cycle, maybe more than ever, we're seeing those two things conflict. The It's okay to wait versus you need time to raise money. Those two things are coming into direct conflict with each other. And it, it's interesting you say that too, because in, you know, with, with some of these candidates, as you said, you know, the, the hurdle is, has been sort of consolidating some of his uh, support in, in Michigan. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Slotkin, though, I mean, as soon as Debbie Stabenow announced her retirement, uh, I mean, she waited a, a respectful few days, uh, but it, it was it was clear she made clear pretty quickly that she'd be running for this and running early. And part of it is that she has a somewhat somewhat national profile, I guess, uh, if if you count you know people who are really paying attention to politics. And she also is good at raising money, uh, and she just didn't want to. It sounds like she didn't want to waste any time and and just made her intentions like clear from the beginning, right? Because there are ways. A a thing that I think Slock and others try to do is get in early, raise a bunch of money, and intimidate or kind of keep everyone else on the sidelines. Now we mentioned Hill Harper getting into the Michigan Democratic race. There's another candidate, um, another woman in the race as well. So there's going to be a Democratic primary. Slock and is still the front runner. On the other hand, you have someone like Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana. I'm actually sitting in Indiana's third district right now where where Banks represents. Uh, When Senator Braun uh, officially announced he was running for governor, Banks got into the race and essentially wrapped up the nomination within six weeks (laughs) earlier this year in terms wrapped it up in terms of keeping other major Republican contenders 
uh, out of the race. So there, there are advantages to getting in early. It's not just all negative about, about getting attacked. And some of the other folks who threw their hats uh, into the ring, so to speak, on on Monday of this week uh, were uh, it may be you know that that, that this makes some Republicans in Washington happy. Uh, like for instance, in in Nevada, um, you know Jackie Rosen is, is running for uh, re-election. This is her first you know first time running for re-election uh, as as an incumbent, and uh, you know like she. The, the field was a little unsettled for a while. There was, uh, you know, Jim Marchant, who's uh, elect someone who's called into question the the results of the last few elections. Was was her opponent? I think Democrats like to run against uh, people uh, election deniers, uh, the, the, but uh, but but she uh, may have another. Republicans got got a candidate that they think they feel pretty good about based on some of the reaction. Let's talk about that candidate who jumped yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, Sam Brown, um, a disabled Afghanistan war veteran with a, a pretty powerful story and profile. Um, he ran for the Senate last cycle as the anti-establishment candidate against Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt was a unique, he has a you know a great family name and, and inherited political heritage in the state. And he actually was one of the first candidates to be able to bridge the divide between the anti-establishment kind of club for growth world and McConnell world. Uh, but then Sam Brown decided to run anyway and had a respectable, I believe he got 34 or 35% in the Republican primary against Laxalt, which was, which was pretty good. Then we roll into this cycle and there's, uh, I'm trying to remember, I know this is a recorded podcast, Jason, but remember sort of the evolution on Sam Brown, that when we talked early with Republican strategists, Sam Brown's name was out there, but it wasn't an immediate, yes, he's our guy. But then over the first six months of this, uh, over the six months of the year, he became sort of more of the favorite of strategists in Washington and, and the target candidate to try to get into the race. He did jump in uh, this week. But he's going to have at least somewhat of a primary against Marchant. And I don't think he could take it for granted because I would argue that Brown's own candidacy last cycle shows that there's an appetite for an anti-establishment candidate within the Republican Party in Nevada. Right. But but in general, this may – the potential for this to be a more – uh, competitive race got higher, you know, with just with Brown's presence. Yeah, I, I would say yes, Jason, but Republicans are surprisingly very narrowly focused on their best opportunities. Best opportunities being West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana, all three states with Democratic senators that Trump won in 2020. But Nevada should be right up there close to that category. But when you hear Republicans and even Mitch McConnell, I think Mitch McConnell. Uh, when he was talking about this was, gosh, I don't know, a month and a half ago when he was talking about top Senate races, he mentioned those yep. those three and he threw in Pennsylvania. Nevada was not on that list. I don't know if Sam Brown himself fundamentally changes that or not. If he's the nominee, it should be competitive. Nevada is a is a competitive state in the words of uh, John Ralston on Twitter. You know, we matter in terms of <laughs> Nevada. It's going to be close at the presidential level, but it isn't at the top of Republicans' minds when they think about winning back the Senate majority. And for the, you know, speaking of Montana, just for, for the record, like another, uh, we got we got more news from this batch of of candidacies announced on on Monday in Montana, not at the Senate race level. Um, I mean, at one point, Ryan Zinke, who represents the first district, 
in Montana was talked about as a potential uh, uh, senatorial candidate. Uh, looks like he's probably going to run for the House, but his uh, his opponent, who he beat narrowly in 2022, uh, it sounds like she's back for a rematch. Right. Uh, Monica Trinnell, uh, a former Olympic rower, uh, could be adding to our Olympians the cycle running if gold medal winning figure skater uh, Sarah Hughes runs in New York. Um, yeah, she's back. Uh, Zinke, this is a district that shouldn't be competitive, as competitive as, it, as what it is, but Zinke has some kind of unique vulnerabilities that uh, in, that's one of the reasons why we have it on our list of competitive races. We have it rated as likely Republican, but it was close. It was a three-point race in 2022. A lot of it could depend on the top of the ticket. Uh, Trump, if he's the nominee or the Republican nominee for president, is likely to win this again. The question is the margin and how much ground Trinnell will have to make up. And actually, Tim Sheehy on the Senate side just missed this. He he announced earlier this month, uh, but that is a, a wealthy, another veteran candidate the Republicans targeted uh, who recruited to get into the race, but he might still have a primary uh, against Congressman Matt Rosendale, who represents the other district in Montana uh, before they get a chance to focus on John Tester in the general election, and again, just more intrigue there too. The you know the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, Steve Daines, is from Montana as well. So I mean, you can't can't help but think that uh, you know he'll the some some of the attention there you know will just come naturally from the fact that the the chair of the campaign arm uh, is from there and would. Uh, likely love to uh, bring home bring home that seat, uh, flip that seat. Uh, I mean, it, it, I would love to know what sort of conversations he and Tester may have when they have to talk about state business. If they if they do, uh, it seems like it could get awkward there. But then again, maybe they don't talk as much as we imagine that they do in the in Senate Senate circles. If if they're if they're flying on the same flight and Tester's trying to put his meat that he flies with like up in the carry on, <laughs> up in the upper taking up all the room in the carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, but um, Rosen and Rosendale well, Dan, have Dan's his own private plane, so uh, probably go. yeah. Like, like, who knows? Uh, that's an issue. <laughs> and with Rosendale, it's complicated because the club for growth has been very um, public in in trying to get him into the race. But Rosendale's relationship with Trump uh, is complicated. If you remember on the House floor during the Speaker votes, when Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, looks like had Trump on the phone, like trying to hand and trying to hand it off to Rosendale and Rosendale just, you know, like get out of yep. here with that trash. Um, those are, that's my paraphrase of, of, of his motions, but poetic uh, license. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Republicans are still in there, even though they have, they've made efforts to avoid primaries. They've been getting some of the candidates they want into the race, into races, but it looks like they're still going to have to win the nominations before getting to the general. And I wonder if some of some of the emphasis on hitting it so hard with Montana and West Virginia and and Ohio for McConnell and and his crew is that those are so. I mean, certainly Montana and West Virginia are, are solidly Republican. Ohio has been trending Republican, you know, for for years. Who knows what will happen with the districts? I mean, you mentioned that the Ohio's first district, the Cincinnati area, where uh, Greg Landsman represents, he's first term, you know, the, the lines might change because they're under a, an order, you know, to redraw the lines. So who knows how that'll shake out for other races, but Ohio, the Republicans have to feel better about Ohio because of just the overall trends, you know, the, the 
the Republican nominees for president, not just Trump, but Romney, McCain, like had, you know, growing, <laughs> you know, uh, win totals in, in, in Ohio, which used to be the quintessential swing state and is no longer. And, you know, maybe Pennsylvania and Nevada are just too swingy uh, for, for, for them to, to test the waters there that, you know, especially as somebody like Trump is the nominee, Trump could do, could help or could hurt there. Whereas he pretty much only helps in a place like West Virginia. Right. I th- I think it comes down to you don't only have to focus on three races or four races. You have the time and ability to focus on eight to ten, you know, races. You don't particularly at this early point in the cycle, you're not really committing any funds or money, but you want as many opportunities as possible to cultivate as many opportunities as possible in case things go sideways in one or two of your best races. If uh, a nominee implodes or just someone goes off the rails, which Republicans have been known to have those types of races, why have such a narrow funnel right now? Uh, But Ohio, Republicans do feel better about Ohio. Remember, let's go back in our time machine two years ago where there was a primary in Ohio. Republicans still won it, but they had to spend millions of dollars sort of bailing out J.D. Vance in the general election, that money that could have been spent elsewhere. I think Republicans are encouraged this time because the three candidates who are are likely to be two or in, one is likely to join before too long, but they don't appear to have the same vulnerabilities that J.D. Vance has. And so they uh, the primary shouldn't be as problematic. Now, my, my colleague Aaron Covey on the Inside Elections side, she points out, though, that even if the candidates don't have their own vulnerabilities, just running in a competitive primary does tend to force candidates to the right or taking somewhat unpopular positions on issues and and that that should be a concern for Republicans in Ohio and elsewhere. You know, let's talk about specific issue, abortion access, right? Where where are you on what should when should there be legal access to abortion? That can push Republicans to the right. And then the general election, it's tougher to pivot to a more moderate electorate. Before we go, I, I'm curious your thoughts about Joe Manchin, who, you know, is is the you know Democratic senator from West Virginia. He, he has not made his intentions uh, uh, clear yet about whether he's running for re-election. Re- the Republicans got their candidate in the current sitting governor, Jim Justice, who, a former Democrat who's now a Republican and close to Trump and popular. You know, he's got this thing with his dog that he trots out every once in a while that I guess endears him to people. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so Manchin would be in for a tough race. He's also announced that he's going to do an event up in New Hampshire New Hampshire. Why is that? Why is that significant? Just, just, uh, just an accident. I'm right. sure. Uh, he's going to do an event in New Hampshire with former Senator Joe Lieberman for uh, no labels, uh, which is sort of actively kind of sort of maybe we think so, but we're not going to say for sure. Uh, <laughs> trying to field a third party uh, candidate for president uh, for for the 2024 election. What what's your What's your take on this? I mean, does this signal more that Manchin wants to run for president himself? He, I mean, everybody talks about Trump and Biden's age, but Manchin is also no spring chicken. Uh, or is this just him helping out Joe and his, all of his buddies at No Labels and because those relationships go back for a while? Uh, or is this sending a signal to the home crowd that like I am not going to be a, just a tool of the Democratic Party? I'm I'm an independent-minded person. What what what's or is it a combination of all? What's your take on that? Well, 
there's, uh, that was 27 questions, I think, Jason. It's, it's, it's the, you the exceeded your limit. The actor, uh, who is the, who's the actor uh, in Back to School who just died? Uh, he, he, but he played the professor, Thornton Mellon, Rodney Dangerfield's professor. And he says, uh, you know, when they're, they're doing his boards, the, you know, to prove that he did his own work, he says, I only have one question. In 27 parts. <laughs> right. I feel like <laughs> I just live, I'm living yeah. through that right now. <laughs> I <Okay>. apologize. <laughs> uh, with, with, Joe, with Joe Manchin, maybe as, as good as any of the top senators who like to get attention in, in, the, in the chamber right now, Manchin, Manchin's up there, right? Manchin can play the game. He knows how to get attention. He knows how to cultivate a, a specific moderate image. With no labels, I think you're right that there is something to just the even the appearance of of being willing to do a no labels event. I, I've kind of thought I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble here, Jason. But when it oh, comes good. to no one, yeah, it's all for the it's all for the for the for the clicks. Um, when it comes to things like no labels or problem solvers caucus, I feel like those are things that members like to be a part of maybe to get things done, but also to be able to tell people that they are a part of those things to cultivate a certain image with Manchin. I, I don't expect Manchin to run for reelection. I think if he has a pollster that um, will be honest with him, it is going to be extremely difficult for him to win. Even if Alex Mooney, the Congressman who's running, uh, you know, against justice in the Republican primary, I think Mooney would still be a problem for Manchin because West Virginia has moved so far to the right, even since the last time he was on the ballot. So then does Manchin run for president? Uh, I know that when this event came out, I think Manchin tried to, it felt like walk it back a little bit about don't look too much into this New Hampshire trip with this group as <laughs> me running for president as a third party candidate. He just, he said New he Hampshire's wanted beautiful to- beautiful this time of year. <laughs> I know. I mean, don't look too much into where I'm actually going and who I'm who I'm with. But he uh, he was saying something about it was, it's just about democracy working, and so it was very felt like kind of an ambiguous an ambiguous statement. He could end up running for president, but gosh, when it comes down to it, Manchin has had a pretty incredible political career in West Virginia. Do you want to end with a? losing re-election race or a losing presidential race. Like, is that really how Joe Manchin's going to go out? I tend to doubt it, but obviously he's going to make up his own mind. And by the way, I did look it up uh, while while you were – I promise I was paying attention. Uh, everything you said was totally fascinating. There's going to be a quiz on this. Uh, I'm going to have the quiz uh, now for you. <laughs> uh, the actor's name, I looked it up very quickly. Paxton Whitehead uh, just re- recent, recently died. Uh, but he played uh, Professor Philip uh, Barabee uh, in uh, in in Back to School, uh, the the classic from 1986. Well, I'm pretty sure that this is the only podcast that Paxton Whitehead and Monica Trinell have ever been together in the same episode. So we we did I, something, Jason, together. I, th- I think a Skulls Back to School uh, double feature is in everybody's best interest at this. There you point go. In life. There you go. Well. Nathan, thank you for explaining. <laughs> How do we end? How do we go? Where do we go from here? I don't even we know do, where we, we just, go. Well, the, the the way that I advise everybody uh, when I'm editing, or uh, which is. How do you end a story with a period? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. that 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 is how we will end. You know, obviously more to come. It's always good to talk to you ab- about where things are in the race. I mean, it, it is. You're right. Things are are have developed more slowly, but it it does feel like we there are some. 
known knowns, if you will, uh, to quote uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, and some known unknowns, and we'll just keep hitting them uh, as we as we get closer and closer. But Nathan, enjoy the, the beautiful Indiana weather, uh, and please don't drive your car into a ditch. I that's that's my goal. Uh, I want to be able to appear on a future uh, political theater episode. So got to stay safe. For sure. Uh, and would you like to plug your own podcast? Because I know this is a new thing too. And as you're done listening to this political theater episode, uh, you can check out the Inside Elections podcast. Uh, we just launched uh, a few weeks ago. We've got a couple episodes in the books. So uh, once you're done with the full political theater catalog, check out Inside Elections podcast. Uh, we uh, will be. I think you'll you'll find it fun and interesting. So. And and yeah, since yeah. this is uh, yeah, and since this is only uh, episode two hundred and ninety six of <laughs> of political theater, not counting the uh, before we renamed it, uh, that that uh, it shouldn't take that long to get uh, through the whole catalog. There was um, there was no skulls mentioned in episode two, but we did talk about Vanessa Carlton's uh, "A Thousand Miles" and that relevance to the Rhode Island House special election. So that's the kind of crossover content you're going to get. And as Alan, our producers, our our duo, our our both of ours producer has just pointed out, uh, it this could be the best podcast double feature going. Listen back to back political theater and inside elections. Uh, with that, uh, thank you again, Nathan. Thank you out there, listeners, for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast or say nice things about us in reviews. It always helps. Uh, and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we love uh, sending you reminders when we've got new stuff up. Until then, until the next time, talk to you later. Yeah.